Welcome to Maniacally Midwest, a true crime podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Maniacally Midwest. I'm Chloe, and I'm here with my co-host, Katie. Say hi, Katie. What's up? (laughs) What's up, people? She's here, I promise. So if you're not familiar with our podcast, if you're just kind of jumping in, basically what we do is we cover crimes based out of the Midwest And each week we pick different crimes and present them to each other. The other co-host doesn't know what the crime is. So it's really fun. We all get to kind of hear these crimes together and get our reactions in real time. This week, Katie is going to be presenting her crime first. I think we are going to try and continue to drop two episodes a week and kind of spread them out throughout the week because we've been getting a ton of good feedback and you guys are hungry for more content, which we love. Katie will present first this week. I'm excited to hear what she picked. And with that, Katie, take it away. All right. Well, happy new year, everyone. Chloe forgot to wish you a happy new year because she's an animal. We're a week in. I already forgot. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I hope everyone is having a great start to the new year. I'm not. I hate new years. I don't know why, but Whatever. We'll get through it. It's been a rocky start. There's (laughs) alcohol in my coffee this morning, if that indicates how my 2022 is going. And I feel like drinking mineral water for me is a sign that things are not going well, because normally it's either coffee or Diet Coke. So clearly I need help in anywhere I can get it from. Yikes. All right. Katie, some caffeine. This week we are headed to Iowa. Here's a little known fact about me and Iowa. My parents, when I was a kid, would take my sister and I to Amana Colonies in Iowa, which is an Amish settlement for vacations. Okay, let's back up real quick. Is this a Wisconsin thing? Because so I am married into this really wonderful, big, crazy Mexican family. And I was clearly like the whitest person in this family until we spoke with my husband's cousin who had out-whited me. And we came to that conclusion because he also grew up going to these Amish settlements. We didn't do that in Michigan. So is this like white people in Wisconsin, they need to go be with the Amish? I'm confused. I don't know any, I was pretty salty about it because I don't know anyone who also went to Amish settlements for vacation. Like I'd come back and be like, oh, what'd you do for vacation? Oh, you went to Disney World. Cool. (laughs) I went to this Amish settlement for vacation where our hotel didn't even have a freaking TV. You could just read books while you're there and play checkers. So hilarious. Anyways. Um, so that's your Iowa we... connection. <laughs> it's good Got times. Yeah. Um, before we jump into it, I do have some trigger warnings, oh multiple murders, not only sexual assault, but sexual assault of a minor. So this might not be some people's jam, but this is your heads up. Obviously, we try to perspe- uh, present it in a respectful way, but if that's something that maybe is too much for you, I get it. 
On November 17, 1973, 13-year-old Sandra Chesky, 14-year-old Dana Bade, I think was how you say his last name. It's a boy, Dana, not girl. 18-year-old Stuart Bade, 15-year-old Mike Hadrith, and 17-year-old Roger Essam decided to hang out at Gitche Manitou State Preserve. Sits right on the border of like Iowa and South Dakota. It's just outside Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So throughout this crime, we'll kind of be bouncing back between Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Iowa. But right now in the Gitche uh, State Preserve, that's Iowa. Whatever. So these teenagers decided that they just wanted to go hang out at the campfire, sing some music and crap. And this was pretty commonplace for people to just relax that way on the state preserve. Sandra's boyfriend was Roger. And I kind of even (laughs) wrestled mentioning it because I feel like her age and his age, maybe some people would have some judgments about that. She was 13 and he was 17. Mm-hmm. Not to get on the soapbox, but the 70s aren't much different in reference to like essentially victim blaming. So, but to be thorough, I figured I would mention the fact that Roger was her boyfriend. So that's why there is also a range from 13 to 18 year old people there that night. Um, but if anyone's going to send me a message about Sandra's parents letting her date a 17 year old, I mean, I get it. I probably wouldn't let my kid, but I'm not making any judgments. I don't know their situation. The point is, I'm not going to crap on a victim. So whatever. Yeah. Anyways, this group of friends apparently also had marijuana with them while they were hanging out by the campfire. They just were trying to hang out, enjoy their friendship, play some music. I get what they were doing was and still is currently illegal in the state of Iowa. But I feel like recreational pot smoking is kind of comparable to underage drinking. And I'm from Wisconsin. (laughs) No one takes it that seriously. Or most people don't take it that seriously. So I just feel like I should mention it because it does play into what follows. We then have the Fryer Brothers. Alan is 29, David is 24, and James is 21. They were out illuminating to poach deer, which, do you know what that is, Chloe? I gotta say, no, I do not know what illuminating, I know what like poaching is, I don't know what illuminating means. So essentially like what you do is you go out wherever you're hunting and you bring either a spotlight or you have like those big bright headlights on an ATV or some people even use their car headlights. You see a deer and you flash the lights. If you've heard the phrase like a deer in headlights, when deer see headlights, they freeze and they stare at the light. If they see a person, they would run because they think people are a threat, but the light they don't see as a threat. And they also don't see the person flashing the light at them and then people shoot them. That's what they said they were doing. But then, okay, so got on my hunting soapbox. I showed my camouflaged blood, (laughs) but okay. So I think it gives an insight into these brothers mindset because I think that what they're doing is cruel. They're looking to spotlight and they see this campfire and they see these kids smoking marijuana. So they position themselves on a ridge overlooking them and they shoot And they immediately kill Roger 
and they also injured Stuart with their shotgun. Oh my God. The other kids ran to the trees to take cover and the Friar brothers decided that they were going to impersonate narcotics officers to make these kids believe that they needed to hand over like the pot. I don't know if they thought like that narcotics officers are like drugs, shoot everyone. But yeah, I guess, I don't know, whatever. So they re- they ordered the remaining four alive teenagers out of the trees and they had them walk on a trail to the van that they, the victims, drove to the park um, and get in. Well, actually, not everyone get in. They tied up Sandra and put her in the van. And then the three boys, um, Stuart, Dana, and Michael, remained outside. David and James remained outside and Alan and Sandra went in the van. David and James shot all three of them with their shotguns near the road, which because of the location, they were found the following day by a couple that was test driving their brand new car. And Roger was found the day after that because where he was by the campfire wasn't like right there next to a road that like someone just driving past would see it. Right. So let's go back to the van. Alan told Sandra that he was a police officer and the boss of the other two. So she shouldn't worry. They would do whatever he told them to do. Um, Alan met up his brothers in the pickup truck. So the Friars pickup truck that they'd been in and they ditched the van. So Alan and Sandra got in the pickup truck. They went to a farm where James raped her. So I don't need to go into details but that happened. And then early in the morning following this rape, Alan took Sandra in the pickup truck. He filled gas into his car from this like large red fuel tank on this farm that they were at, mm-hmm. drove her home, still saying he was a cop and that she was too young to get busted. This is important because Alan was supposed to kill Sandra. Like the intention of the other two brothers and him was not to send her home but people assume that because Alan spent so much time with them one-on-one that she, like he started viewing her as a person, like, as opposed to just like, whatever, just end this. Um, They also said that she was charming and sweet. And so like, he didn't want to kill her. Yeah. I mean, I made a joke to Mirza, like, Oh, I feel like (laughs) if I was riding with someone, they might be like, you know what? I'm not going to kill this person. And then they'd spend time with me and be like, actually, I've had enough of you and your bull crap. You're done. <laughs> like, you would have the opposite effect. They'd be like, I, listen, I didn't want any violence to happen tonight, but you forced my hand. I'm so sick of you. Oh, my God, Katie. <laughs> Sandra did not hesitate or lose any composure in reporting her rape and the murders. I mean, granted at that point, the only murder that she knew for sure happened was Roger. Right. Because they had already left in the van, but she assumed that the same fate had met the other three. Mm -hmm. So this 13-year-old girl watched her boyfriend get murdered. And then on top of that, there was this rape. And on top of that, she was driven home to her house. Like... He didn't say I'm going to kill you, but I feel like the assumed thing is, is like they, he knows where you live, but like he took you to your house. He could always come back. They could come back, whatever. Uh, yeah. 
Um, but she did not hold anything back. And I'm amazed by that, but I'm also like, this is the 70s, she's a girl. So people questioned the credibility of it. And there were insane. There are bodies. How are you gonna question the credibility? Like what so some people assumed that because she was so composed and was like just giving all these details and didn't seem scared that she must have had something to do with them maybe it wasn't rape you know the classic like oh well she wanted it kind of a deal so i can only imagine the boldness it takes to report a rape in the 70s so that age especially yeah no good on sandra uh she's a badass yeah definitely So immediately she got to doing like ride arounds with the police looking for the farmhouse that she told them she was brought to Mm -hmm. um, and raped at. And she said after days of searching, it just like felt so hopeless. Mm -hmm. So on November 29th, which was 12 days, almost two weeks after these attacks happened, she was with the Lyon County Sheriff, uh, Lyon County Sheriff Craig Vinson. And near Hartford, South Dakota, she spotted something that she could identify. So if you remember, Alan filled up his truck from a big red fuel tank on the side of the barn. And it was staring her right in the face. She finally found the place that she was attacked at. But the farm wasn't owned by the Friars. So maybe it wouldn't be that easy. Later, they found out it was Alan's employer's farm. And if you're wondering how they found that out is because while they were at the property, the blue pickup truck that she was in with them drove by with Alan driving the freaking car. Oh my God. And right there. And then she said to the sheriff, that's him. That's the guy who says he's the boss. So he was pulled over right away and arrested. David and James were arrested shortly after. Now, Alan's story um, changed repeatedly, started out saying kids were shooting at them, and then they accidentally killed them when returning the fire, which obviously was not true. Um, By his third interview, he started to tell the truth, but he also was trying to justify and like victim shame them and saying they were drinking and smoking pot. We wanted to steal it. So whatever, like trying to make excuses like, okay, that's just grasping still not okay whatever david fryer ended up telling the investigators a similar story but eventually did change it to the truth okay um sandra identified the other two brothers who she didn't see driving the car obviously she verbally identified alan to the sheriff um but she identified the other two in a lineup she has balls of steel i am endlessly impressed with her she's 62 now but I can I only imagine like our parents age. That's wild. Yeah. I can only imagine that her like badassery has like aged and perfected over time. I hope so. I hope she did some really cool things with her life. Uh, I read that she's a mom and a grandma. So I mean, what kids and grandkids are super lucky to have this kick-ass lady as their family member. Definitely. Okay. So. Wait, were the friars Amish? <laughs> no did we not get to the Amish part yet I need to know no I was just there's no Amish people involved in this story just sharing my experience with Iowa sorry 
I thought they said that they were going to be Amish people involved. And I was like, but they have a truck. Is that allowed? No, I said, like, here's my experience with Iowa. Sorry for the, the buildup. If anyone else was like, where do the Amish come in with their DNA testing or what? I think that the Baileys may just be kicking in. So I did <laughs> miss that correlation. But thank you for clarifying anyways. No, no Amish. Okay, okay. No Amish. Sandra, Sandra's a badass. Yes. Continue. So now we come to James. Jimmy, yeah. this little my French prick. Yuck. Uh, who, if I can refresh your memory, is the one who raped Sandra in addition to committing the murders. Uh, he decided to blame everything on his brothers. He threw them under the bus oh immediately. Um, then he pulled the super D-bag move and said that Sandra was laughing, having a good time, and she wanted to have sex with him and David, which, point out, <laughs> nowhere else did anyone mention David, but he wants to say wasn't just him, it was David. <sighs> In addition to all this douchiness from him, Mm-hmm. During the time of the rape and the murders, he was already serving jail time, but he was on a work release program and David had called pretending to be his employer requesting he work an extra shift, but it oh. was so the three of them could hang out and, I mean, essentially end up committing these murders and crimes. What was he in jail for at the time? I don't know. I, I didn't find that. I, I don't know if people can be arrested for being D-bags, but mm. if... If yes, then that probably was the probably. thing. Probably. There might be some laws about that in Iowa. I'm not sure. Alan and David were moved from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where they were arrested, over to the Lyon County Jail in Iowa. Okay. Um, however, James remained in South Dakota since he was already serving time there, as I just mentioned. Um, all three were charged on December 1st, 1973, with four counts of murder, and the bond was set at $400,000 for each brother. So $100,000 per person killed. And this week I didn't Google like what that was like yeah. calculating for inflation or anything, but it's a lot of money, a whatever. Lot. Sandra's testimony was the nail in their coffin at the trial, which between the three brothers, the trial lasted for 18 months. They were all tried separately. I I don't, even right now, I don't think that crimes that involve sexual assault are very mm, I don't know what the word is that I would use like I I don't think it's meant to be disrespectful but I think that it is re-traumatizing victims so I'm gonna just assume that probably in the 70s it was even more so and she just keeps showing up and keeps like saying like nah I'm gonna tell the truth I don't care I'll stare you in your face so on February 12th, 1974, David pled guilty to the open charge of murder, guilty to three charges of murder and one charge of manslaughter. He admitted to killing Stuart Bad, and he was later sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. His response to the judge was no. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, mean, I guess go down fighting, but like okay that's how you think it works it feels like when I'm like talking to my daughter when I'm like that's what I was gonna say do this and she's like no and I'm like I didn't ask you (laughs) like you're doing that 
So he said that if all of his appeals failed, he would actually write the governor and ask them for the death penalty because he wouldn't want to live his life out in jail, which I think that probably my pettiness comes out, but I'm like, oh, good. He doesn't like his punishment. Perfect. That means you picked the right one. (laughs) Exactly. Like, did you think throwing a temper tantrum was going to help you out with this? Because I mean, you know, sometimes it's like, I don't know where I kind of sit on the death penalty, but sometimes I'm like, well, that seems unfair and super easy. They caused all this pain and then they're just done. And then other times I'm like, well, it seems unfair that the taxpayers have to pay money for these people to be imprisoned and eat and stuff like that. So I think the point is, is like, find out what thing would make them unhappy and then do that one. (laughs) (laughs) Like just that that way. Oh my God. Well, now we know how Katie really feels. In 2016, he asked the parole board to overturn the without a possibility of parole section of his sentence. Mm -hmm. But homegirl Sandra showed up again, testified to the board as well as Michael's sister, and it was denied. So suck it. Now, moving on to Alan, he was given psychiatric testing and found to be fit for trial. And his began in February 1974. He was found guilty in May of 1974, four counts of first degree murder, and he was uh, sentenced to four consecutive life terms. Oh my gosh. Now we're coming back to Turkey Butthole James. He agreed to be extradited from South Dakota to Iowa, but I guess later fought that because he was like, oh, if I fight it, maybe there's a possibility I get released in the meantime. I don't really know why. (laughs) It doesn't sound like that would be a possibility, but. Yeah, he's an idiot. Okay. Anyways, on June 18th, 1974, like a month after Alan's trial was wrapped up, Mm -hmm. Alan and James were both being held in Lyon County Jail, um, which I watched like a video thing on oxygen. It looks like, like it, it kind of looks like a school building where like the people who run the jail actually live in a section of the jail. There's like a housing section. It's like this big brick building. That is strange to me. I mean, I feel like I imagine like the wild, wild west. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, this is a weird, weird, but okay. Anyways, they escaped. They stole a car and fled the state. (laughs) They were on. Yeah. So Alan was already convicted. James hadn't had his trial yet, but they were on the run for around a week before the cops picked them up in Gillette, Wyoming. So I'm honestly surprised that they got away for that long. And of all places, I mean, I guess, so when I think of Wyoming, it's pretty vast and full of nothing, but I suppose that if there's not a lot of people out there, maybe you're more likely to find them. I don't, I feel like it can go both ways. If you have everything you need, I think that you can disappear easier. If you need stuff, I think that's where you'd be screwed because like the towns are smaller. People know people more. It's like they pay attention. Cause I feel like when I think of like South Dakota, Wyoming, Utah, all that stuff, it's only like in reference to like, there's this truck driving where I'm like, oh boy. There's like no truck stops. It's a lot of like emptiness, but I don't think that they packed like a tent or had like supplies ready to go. They would have had to stop somewhere. No, definitely. 
Then James's trial began in 1974, and a state psychiatrist determined that his IQ was 85, which I Googled because I don't really know what the different levels are. It's just low average. It's not like I think it's 80 to 89 is considered low average. 90 plus, I think 90 to 100 or 90 to 99 is average. I don't know why they mentioned that, like just to be like, eh, he's like kind of dumb. But okay. then they also mentioned he poorly controlled his behavior, which <laughs> you think? Like, no crap. Um, so on December 30th, 1974, he was found guilty of three charges of first-degree murder and one charge of manslaughter. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So since he was serving life without the possibility of parole, the DA believed that there was no need to subject Sandra to a rape trial. And I don't know what to think about that. I think that actually kind of pisses me off, to be honest. Yeah, I think that maybe if she had suggested, hey, I don't want to pursue this since this is the case, that would make sense to me. You know what I mean? If the ball was in her court, but I don't like that the DA made that call presumably without I mean maybe it's just lack of information that he like that a place would report that that's why Mm -hmm. but I guess the thing that I find like kind of bizarre about this is she testified against him Mm -hmm. and all three brothers were tried separately so why wouldn't we add that to a charge when she was already testifying against them and I'm sure that it came up that he raped her because I guess I mean I've heard of states deciding not to charge murderers who have already been convicted because it is a use of tax dollars but I guess I'm going to jump on my soapbox again and say that I think it's extremely important that people who commit sexual assault of any kind have that title slapped on them whether or not it matters that he's ever going to get out I think that for healing and stuff that that's important and especially considering that there was questions from the community. I mean, people are going to say whatever, no matter what you do, but I think that that would have given more solace. I know that rape and sexual assault are underreported anyways, because they are hard to convict, Mm -hmm. but I think that they could have convicted on this and given this girl now woman and other girls and women like the support and that they felt like they were supported and protected by the justice system which I mean I'm not like a raging feminist but women are crapped on all the time so no I totally agree and I think that it is unfortunate that they chose not to pursue that but But Sandra is out there still telling her story, still being a badass. You can find video clips of her and stuff like that. So she's awesome. Good. Well, that is all that really matters in the end. So I'm very happy to hear that. And that is the end of that. They're all still in jail. So 
Well, thank you for presenting that. That was super interesting. Even though there were no Amish people involved, it was still a great crime cover that I have never personally heard of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for all the positive support. Follow us on Instagram, Maniacally Midwest. TikTok, it's the same handle. Chloe is one day going to record a TikTok. We'll see. It might be today but we will <laughs> I keep making myself look like an idiot you can see me paint some beard and mustache on my face on tiktok please go so. check it out it's fabulous um <laughs> and if you guys have a chance definitely uh subscribe to us on apple podcasts and spotify and leave us some reviews if you have a chance as well all right thanks everyone happy new year happy bye new year. bye